Welcome to the teaching ministry of Dr. Fred Lowry, illuminating God's Word for today's world. The choice, the Word of God, or the world. The choice, Christ, or culture for us. We can choose Christ. young man who was climbing a mountain. He was determined to get all the way to the top. And he got to the top of the mountain, and then his foot slipped, and he starts sliding down this mountain when he sees a large vine, and he grabs hold of that vine. Now he's hanging between life and death. And so he starts crying, help me. Will somebody help me? Please help me. And a voice says, Yes, and he says, who is that? It's God. Will you help me? Will you please help me? Yes, I will. What should I do? What do you want me to do? Turn loose. Is there anybody else up there? And you know that's how we are. We are afraid to turn loose and let go and let God do what he wants to do in our life. We want to stay in charge, stay in control. And many times, that's what keeps us from finding the fulfillment and the freedom we're looking for. We're studying the 12 classic steps of AA, and we're calling it the 12 steps to freedom and fulfillment. These first three steps are absolutely essential. Leave out any one of them, and you can take any number of steps. You can take a thousand steps, but you'll never experience freedom and fulfillment. You remember in step one, an acknowledgement of helplessness. I admit that I have this addiction, this compulsive behavior, this personality disorder, and I can't handle it. My life is out of control, it has become unmanageable. I'm helpless and hopeless to do anything about it. I need help. That's called the bottom. When a person reaches the bottom and realizes that he's helpless and hopeless, then and only then can that person get up and find the fulfillment and the freedom through an experience with Almighty God. And what I'm discovering in the AA movement is that until a person admits reaches the bottom and admits that he's helpless and hopeless, that person can never be helped. doesn't matter who he is, who she is. We've got to reach this point. And by the way, this is a step that we come back to continually, maybe on a daily basis where we keep acknowledging that we need God desperately. And without Him, we cannot make it. Without Him, we will not make it. Step number one, helpless and hopeless. Step number two, we've discovered that help is available. There is a higher power that knows us and cares about us and is willing to help us. And you and I know that that higher power is Almighty God and Jesus Christ. He will deal with that area of life in which we have some insanity. And we've learned that insanity is simply when we do something the same way and we expect different results or when we keep trying to do the impossible. Some area of our life, we become insane. We don't make right decisions, sound decisions. And so we need Almighty God 
who can help restore us to sanity, who can forgive us, who can change us, who can empower us. And then we move to step three. And the third step is that we make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand Him. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden. Those of you who are overburdened, who are stressed out to the max, come unto me and I will give you rest, release. This third step is the core of all the steps. It is the cornerstone. It is so essential that we make this step. It's to make a decision. It's to turn your life and your will over to God. It's like taking your car keys and turning them over to somebody else. It's like taking your job and turning it over to somebody who can do a better job than you can do. It's a complete surrender. It's turning over. There is a progression of faith when you study Alcohol Anonymous. You hear them talking about this progression of faith in that they say, first they came, they simply showed up. Secondly, they came to. They got their sanity back. They sobered up. And number three, they came to believe, to believe in a God who cared about them, who loved them unconditionally, and who was willing to help them and who had the power to help them. But the key is that they had to be willing to surrender to him. I surrender myself totally and completely to you, almighty God. I place myself in your hands. I'm willing to follow your agenda, not my own. Help me, I cannot help myself. Save me, I cannot save myself. Heal me, I cannot heal myself. Free me, I cannot free myself. That's the position in this step. Now, let me remind you. The building, if you remember from our last sermon, you are standing on a building and the building is on fire and there is absolutely no way of escape. That's step one. No way out. Step number two, someone appears and that person is rolling a wheelbarrow across a cable to your building and says, I've come to help you get in. That's step number two. Step number three, you get in the wheelbarrow. You believe by faith that God can help you and that you can trust God and you're willing to make that total commitment. You get in the wheelbarrow to go across that cable to the other building. Or you turn loose of the vine that you're holding on to on the side of that mountain because God says, turn loose. You're saying, yes, I trust God. I trust God with my life. I trust God with my future. I surrender everything to him. You say, but I don't understand all about God. You don't have to understand God to trust him. Nobody understands God fully, and nobody ever will. If you could understand him, he wouldn't be God. So even if you, if you don't understand all that it means, you're saying, I know there is a God and there is help available, so I surrender all that I am to all that he is. I'm taking hands off. I'm giving my life to God. Now, there are three key elements of this decision. Number one, make the decision with a clear and rational mind. You're to be sober and certain. 
It's not an emotional decision. It's not a quick fix. You know what you're doing. It's a clear, rational decision. Number two, be sure your commitment is total surrender with no strings attached. Here's where a lot of people miss it. You see, we, ha we have trouble in one area of our life, and we want to give that one area to God. We have trouble with this one area, so we want God to help us in this one area. We say, you know, I've got everything else going okay, but God, would you help me over here? God says, not interested. You just think you've got everything else going okay. You see, we have to totally commit our lives to God, surrender everything to God. God becomes our new manager. God gets in the driver's seat. You and I are no longer under control. That's what step three is all about. And the third thing is you trust the outcome to God. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will direct your paths. You see, when we trust in the Lord and not in ourselves, then and only then will he be able to straighten our paths. You see, God made us, therefore he's the one who best knows how to run us. And so we commit our lives, we turn our lives over to him. Psalm 118, verse 8, it is better to trust the Lord than to put confidence in men. Now, trust God. Total surrender to God. But now here's where many men and women struggle. Because people who, who have addictions, whether it's alcohol or drugs or compulsive behavior of any sort, they, they grew up, many of them, in a dysfunctional home. And many times they, they had parents who were dysfunctional and somehow they transfer their concept of God to their parents. And so they don't trust God because they couldn't trust their parents. They don't believe God that will, will care for them when their parents didn't care for them. And so they have trouble taking this step, this third step of surrender and trust in God because they've had a bad experience with their parents. I got some great news for you. I don't care what your earthly father does, you've got a perfect heavenly father who does love you unconditionally and who cares for you and who wants to help you with your life. He wants to guide you to freedom and fulfillment. Let me tell you something real interesting in this AA movement. When you, when you deal with these men and they're struggling with this concept of God because of their parents, they have a false concept, a distorted. It's almost like they're looking at God through dis, distorted glasses. And so they won't trust the God that they see. And so a counselor says to them, if you could pick your own God, what kind of God would you want? If you could pick the God that you would trust, what kind of God would that be? And here's what they always say. Number one, a God who loves me regardless of what I've done or will do. Number two, a God who personally cares for me. Number three, a God who can do miracles. Ladies and gentlemen, that happens to be the God of the Bible. Not knowing it, they are describing the very God that is saying to them, if you will just turn loose and trust me, 
then I can guide you to freedom and fulfillment. Jesus exemplified this turning over your life when he was in the garden. Remember, he was kneeling and praying to the Father, and he said, God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. There's always struggle in turning over your life to someone else, even if that someone else is God, and even though that's the wisest thing you'll ever do. And so Jesus turned over his life to the will of the Father, and what that meant was the death on the cross. But then beyond the cross, praise God, the resurrection. And you know, that's what happens to you and me. Bill Wilson, who is the founder of AA, tells about in 1934 his life was a mess and he was in one of these addictive cycles and nobody expected him to survive. They thought he would die in this addictive cycle. A friend called him, Ebby Thatcher, an old drinking buddy, a school chum, and said, I want to come over to see you. And so he told him to come on. And so Ebby came, and he came in the house and sat down. And the first thing that Bill did was to push a glass of alcohol over to him. And Ebby says, no thanks. I've got religion. And Bill said, I saw something different in his eyes. There was an aliveness about him. There was something different about him. And then Ebby told his own experience of how he was in court because of his alcoholic insanity, they were going to commit him to an institution, and two men, strangers, appeared and said to the judge, we can help this man. We want the privilege to help him. And they told him about a religious experience, and they told him about a program, and, and so he started going to this Oxford group, and there he met Jesus Christ and invited Christ in his life, and he turned over. He made that decision to commit his life to God. And as a result, he was totally changed. And Bill saw that. He saw the change. He said, this man is different. In fact, he says in the big book, he was dead and now has been resurrected. See, when you turn your life over to God's will, with Christ it was the cross, but then the resurrection. Bill W. says about this man, now he who was dead is alive, and he now is at a higher plane than he's ever been in his whole life. Out of that experience, Bill went on a drunk again, got drunk, and then ended up in the hospital. And there in that hospital experience, he couldn't get away from what he saw and heard from his friend. And there he met God and invited God into his life and gave, he says, I turned over my will and my life, all that I am to Almighty God, to do with me as he wills. And he says, from that day till this, as he write, wrote in the big book of A.A., from that day to this, I've never had anything to drink again. He's talking about this third step, this decision that Ebby Thatcher had and that Bill W. had 
and that's made the difference in men by the hundreds, by the thousands across this land. And it's something that, that you, you have to reach the point where you're willing to trust God more than you trust yourself or anybody else and say, God, I give it to you. Now, somebody's going to say, well, I may do that, but then what happens if I, if I take back control? I guarantee you that you will take back control. There will be relapses, and you'll want to go back to your old self-defeating behaviors. But my friend, what you do is you come back again relying upon the grace and the forgiveness of God who forgives you repeatedly, and you again surrender everything to him. Give back the control over to him. Now, I want you to watch something carefully. There's something called in the recovery movement the one, two, three waltz because many, many men never get beyond the three steps. They recognize that they're helpless and hopeless and that help is available, and they turn it over to God and say, God, help me. I cannot help myself. But at that point, they never go beyond. They go one, two, three, 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 and then they go back to their self-defeating behavior, back to their drinking, back to their drugs, back to their compulsive behavior. I've seen it with my brother over and over again. I've, I don't know how many times I've gotten down with my brother, sometimes driving miles and miles to be with him, and there he's cried his heart out. I've cried my heart out down on our knees. He's prayed, and he's turned his life over to Jesus Christ. He's taken one step, two steps, three steps, but every time he goes back, back to the same self-defeating behavior because he's never able to get beyond step three into step four. Watch what happens. When you take step one, step two, and step three, you become sober and on your way to heaven. You're saved. At that moment, you're saved and you're on your way to heaven. You're still obnoxious. You're sober, but you're obnoxious. You see, before you were obnoxious and on your way to hell. Now you're obnoxious and on your way to heaven. So you can't stop with step three because God now has to change your behavior. He has to work on your personality. And that is a process. You see, listen to me. Trust in Christ is a decision followed by a process. It's true for everybody. Not just for addicts, true for everybody. So you can be sober and on your way to heaven, but still obnoxious. And you have to be willing to do an inventory of your life and let God's Holy Spirit begin to show you what needs to be changed by his power. See, God has a new plan for you. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. But you've got to cooperate with that. You've got to go on to step four. Steps one, two, three are foundational. Steps four through seven, self-discovery. You've got to find out who you are and what you are and what needs to be changed. 
So step four then is to make a moral, a searching and fearless inventory of your life. It's a growth step. It's where we examine our behavior, where we get to know our real self and what's the real issue, what's the bottom line. Now, there are three things necessary to take these next steps. Number one is honesty. Number two is humility. And number three is hurt. You don't like that word, do you? Maybe you don't like either of the three. Honesty, humility, hurt. I'm talking about pain. My friend, you cannot take these steps without experiencing great pain. He said, wait a minute, I just don't like pain. But understand, it's good pain. He said, wait a minute, what do you mean good pain? I've never had good pain. Well, you see, there's a difference between hurt and harm. When I go to the dentist, for some reason, I don't know if he just dislikes me or what, but he tries, it seems like, to give me pain. But he's not doing me harm. He's actually helping me. So I get the pain but it's not harm. There's a difference between harm and pain. So when this pain comes into our life, it's not to harm us, it's to help us. It's not to burn us, it's to bless us. It's not to destroy us, it's to develop us. God is working on us, and it's for our good. It means that we'll have to, have to deal with issues and my friend, it is always easier to deal with the symptoms than it is with the real issues. man had a terrible headache, and it frightened him. It was so bad, and so he went to the doctor, and they thought, well, you know, they, they gave him different tests and decided it could be a tumor, and they went through the MRI and the CAT scan and all that stuff. Nothing. But the man was convinced with this kind of headache he was going to die. And he decided, you know, if I'm going to die, I'm going to kick up my heels and have a little fun. And, and uh, I want, I've never had real good clothes, so I'm, I'm going to go down and get me a, have, have me a suit made. And so he went down, got fitted for this suit, and while he was there, he noticed they also did shirts. So he thought, I'll have me a handmade shirt also. So they were measuring him for the shirt and said 34-inch sleeves and 42-inch chest and 17-and-a-half-inch collar. And the guy said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm a 15 and a half inch collar. The guy said, no, it's a 17 and a half. I just measured. The guy said, every shirt I own is 15 and a half inch. You make it 15 and a half inch. The guy said, okay, but you're going to have a bad headache every day of your life. Well, it's so easy to, to deal with symptoms and not deal with a root problem. There are three things that prevent us from going further in these steps. Number one is denial. We've talked about that before. That's pretending, that's minimizing, that's blaming. One guy says, I have three things wrong with me. My wife, my mother, my oldest son. So easy to blame, isn't it? Or generalize or attack or dodge. The second thing is delay. Tomorrow I'll do it. Next time, when this thing happens, when that thing happens, our dependency. We get comfortable in our own addictions. We have our comfort zone, and we've learned to survive, and many times we've learned to survive with the help of others. They become a part of our problem, not a solution to our problems, because they keep bailing us out and trying to prevent us from having pain. I love the ego 
And when you read stories about the eagle, when they, there comes a time when that eagle has to take that little eaglet and kick it out of the nest. And then, you know, the, the eagles are way up there on a high cliff or in the tallest tree imaginable. And that eaglet is kicked out. Sometimes they say it actually pulls a nest out from under them, takes apart the nest so that they've got to make some decisions before they hit the ground. One of them says, you know, uh, those things on mama's side, they may, they may mean something. I, we got those things too. Let's see if they'll work. If they don't, they're destroyed. And you see, sometimes, though it's painful, we have to force people to accept consequences, to do what they need to do and not bail them out. There are two words that you read a lot about in, in the recovery movement. One is codependency. That's people doing the right thing for the wrong reason. We actually become dependent upon someone who's dependent upon something else. And if we're not careful... The person with a problem becomes a God that controls your life. In other words, let's say you have a son who's an alcoholic, you have a daughter who's on drugs. As long as your son is sober, you're fine. As long as your daughter is off drugs, you're fine. But the moment your son gets drunk, the moment your daughter does drugs, your life is the pits because you're controlled by that behavior. There's a second word called caretaking. It's rescuing. You take care of people, you rescue people by trying to take away the consequences of their actions. Unfortunately, you do more harm than good because what they need to do is to experience their own consequences. They're not going to ever get well unless they feel the pain, unless they experience the consequences. Now, mothers have a real problem here because mothers are natural caretakers. And they want to take care of their kids that are strung out on whatever. And they bail them out. They bail them out time after time after time. I bailed out my brother time after time. It's cost me thousands of dollars. And listen to me, it has not helped him one bit. It probably even hurt him. Because he doesn't need to be bailed out. And yet there's that natural tendency, especially for, for parents and for moms, is to, to, to mother and to nurture this child so that you want to protect this child from any more harm, any more hurt, and yet it's the very hurt, the consequences, that may turn this life around. So if you're helping somebody in that codependent, that caretaking situation, ask yourself a couple of questions. Number one, has it helped? If not, give it up. Stop doing it. I've stopped doing a lot of things with my brother. My mother still gets upset and she doesn't understand me when I won't jump and do whatever my brother wants me to do when he wants to do it and bail him out. I've stopped doing that because it did not work. Second question, is God able to help them without you? Ask yourself those two questions before you get in too deeply. I read a story in People magazine. In fact, I saw the, also the, on television a story about it. This guy named Walter Hudson. He thought he was in control of his life and, and doing okay until he, he slipped and fell on his way to the bathroom and he couldn't get up. Well, his sister Barbara called 911 and the emergency personnel got there and they found 42-year-old Hudson 
lying on his gargantuan belly. And it took firefighters three hours to cut away the door, and it took eight men to hoist this man back up on the bed. He weighed 1,200 pounds. But the story said Walter was calm and happy and comforted by his Bible. You see, somebody should have been taking that Bible and hitting him over the head instead of feeding him because he's surrounded evidently by caretakers. His sister was a nurse, and she said she knew he was overweight, but they couldn't afford medical supervision. Hello. Good night. What? The food bill cost more than Mayo Clinic. Caretakers. He had a 103-inch waist, too big for clothes. Do you get this picture here? A family living with a 1,200-pound naked man who's just happy and comfortable as long as he can eat? That's insanity. Caretaking. Love confronts. Love is willing to make somebody unhappy for a while and say, no, no more food, you fat soul. You're killing yourself. Instead of pretending everything is fine and taking care of those that we claim to love, it takes more love to say no than it does to say yes. If you're going to help people with problems with addictions, if it's food addiction or any other addiction, you've got to keep them away from food and you've got to say no and you've got to be tough or you will not help them. Because let me tell you, it is pain that finally drives people to their senses, to deal with their problems. Take away their pain, and they'll never deal with their problems. So if we're going to get to the bottom line in our life, we've got to, we've got to have some pain, and we've got to allow the Holy Spirit to show us what's really wrong. And one of the worst mistakes you can make in this series is to sit there and say, well, I, I'm telling you, I don't even know why I'm here because he's preaching to alcoholics and drug addicts. No, no, no. I'm preaching to you and me because I've already told you we all have areas of our life that are insane, that are out of control, where we don't make wise decisions. We all are addicted to something. We all struggle with addictions. We all struggle with taking our lives in our own control and playing God in our own lives. So we all need to learn how to take these steps. And we need to recognize that we're all sinners. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and come short of God's glory. No exceptions. We all have pockets of sin in our life that we need to deal with constantly. And we usually have some hidden sins and secret sins that we just let fester inside us. And so we need to do this inventory to make sure that, that what's wrong within us is dealt with. We all have a bent towards sin, don't we? A little, little, little baby born in this world, so pure and innocent, grows a little toddler just toddling around the house and holding on to things and pulling off everything it can pull off, throwing it in the floor, breaking the base. Got this flower pot there and that black dirt and the baby goes into that dirt and you say no 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 and the baby says no 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 and you turn your back and the baby goes Hurr! who taught that child to do that did you teach your child to do that do you teach your child to be bad 
to do wrong, to get in trouble. No, they do it automatically. And they don't get better, they get worse. We all struggle with that sinful nature. We all have it. And we all need some help. Anybody ever teach you to be a little more envious? You ever, ever, you ever ask, would you come over and help me be a little more envious, try to teach me to be a little more greedy? No. You don't need to help, do you? Because we have this sin problem. And that's why we, we come to this fourth step where we take this, this fearless moral inventory of our lives. Now, there are a couple of words there that may bother you. This word fearless, it, it doesn't mean brave. It means without fear. An inventory that makes us afraid is not fearless. So, it's, we're not to be afraid. It's an inventory. It's not a history. We'll talk about our past in, a, in, a, in one of the other steps. But we're talking about doing an inventory of our lives right now. If you're doing a store inventory, you're dealing with what's currently on the shelves. And that's where you are here. And this word moral means honest. So you're doing an honest inventory of where you are right now. Now, it's not a lot of fun. And this is a section that you want to skip. And out of all these sermons, this is the one that, that you want to just kind of bypass and you, you kind of wish you just had it skipped today because you don't want to deal with this inventorying your own life. Before you do this inventory, there are a couple of things you need to deal with first. One is denial. That's that whole thing that it's, this is for somebody else. I don't really have anything to deal with. I'm really fine. That's like that guy weighed 1,200 pounds, and he's happy and comfortable. Just throw me a few more dozen little Debbies and Twinkies, and I'm fine. No, he's not fine. He's sick. He needs help. He needs tough love. He needs confrontation. And you're not fine and I'm not fine, and we need to be honest with ourselves and with God and stop denying and just dealing with symptoms and be willing to get down to the root cause. And then we've got to deal with resentment. As long as you have resentment toward any person on this earth, you'll not ever do this inventory right, and you'll not get to the bottom line because as long as you can blame people, you'll never deal with the root problems as long as you try to blame somebody else. Psalm 139, 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test my thoughts. Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is the most deceitful thing there is and desperately wicked. No one can really know how bad it is. Only the Lord knows. He searches all hearts and examines deepest motives so he can give to each person his right reward according to his deeds, how he has lived. You see... Only God can help us do this inventory. The Holy Spirit is the search engine. The Holy Spirit is the search engine, and He's going to help us with this inventory. In the, uh, in the Old Testament, in the children of Israel, uh, they, were, they were into sin, and they would, they would go down into sin and, and rebellion against God, and then God would raise up a prophet, and the prophet would say, tear your, your garments and they would tear their garments, which is a sign of repentance, and then they'd go right back into sin. Then God would raise up a prophet, and the prophet would say, tear your garments, they'd go right back into sin. And they did that over and over. It's called the cycle of sin in the Old Testament until the prophet Joel spoke. God raised up Joel, and Joel said, it's not tearing your garments. 
you're missing the issue. It's tearing your hearts. We've got to get to the real issue. It's a heart problem. We've got to deal with what's in the heart if we're going to get help. He said, I'm afraid to be that honest. I'm afraid to see what's really inside me. You don't have to be. 1 John 4, 18, we need have no fear of someone who loves us perfectly. His perfect love for us eliminates all dread of what he might do to us. If we are afraid, it is for fear of what he might do to us and shows us that we're not fully convinced that he really loves us. My friend, if you're really convinced that God loves you with a perfect love, he always has your best interest at heart, then you can trust him to show you what needs to be dealt with in your life. If you're going to have any change in your life, you need to know yourself, and you need to know where you are now. If you're going to get from where you are to where you want to be, you've got to know yourself and know where you are now. Socrates says the unexamined life is not worth living. So it's by taking inventory that we grow up, that we break out of our comfort zone, that we move to a higher level, that we reach freedom and fulfillment that God has promised us. You say, well, I just don't know if I need to do this. I promise you, you do. I was preaching in Virginia, and a lady came down the altar, and she said, I, you keep talking about sin. I can't think of any sin in my life. I don't know what you're talking about. I said, why don't you get down there and guess? At least her halo was too tight, probably giving her a headache. We all have sinned. And in the AA movement, they said, here's where you began. We're going to do this inventory of our lives. Here's where we began. And this is not original. It goes back 500 years at least, 500 years ago. And you'll not hear them call the seven deadly sins in the Bible, but they are all in the Bible. And these wise men discovered that if you're going to do this inventory of your life, the best place to start is with these seven deadly sins. And that will that will start things in your life to help you get to the bottom issue. And number one is laziness. You say, oh, I'm not lazy, I'm a hard worker. But do you work hard at loving and cherishing your wife? Are you lazy about that? Loving and spending time with your children, are you lazy about that? Spending time with the Lord in Bible study, quiet time. Do you work hard on the golf course, but you don't work hard for God or the church? Are you lazy about the things of God? Laziness, gluttony. Eating and drinking in excess. Greed, a subtle sin. You know, I've never heard anybody confess to being greedy, but it's everywhere. It's one of our great sins in America today. Somebody asked Rockefeller, what will it take to satisfy a man? He says, just a little bit more. What are you grasping, holding on to? Lust is number four. And we're bombarded with opportunities for lust in today's world. Pornography is seven to eight billion dollar industry. If you take the, the record industry, the CD industry, and the motion picture industry and put them both together, it does not equal pornography in this country. Lust, we're eating up with it. Envy, wanting what somebody else has. Anger, you'll never find happiness in your home. You'll never find freedom and fulfillment until you deal with unresolved anger. Pride. I'm in charge of my own life. God, you're moved out of the corner office. I'm going to run up my flag. I'm in charge. Sinful pride. The seven deadly sins.
Step number one, I'm hopeless and helpless. My life is out of control. It's unmanageable. Step number two, help is available. There is a God who cares about me. Step number three, I get in the wheelbarrow. I trust God. I commit, I make the decision. I commit my life to God. I turn over the keys of my life to God. Step number four, I'm willing now for the Holy Spirit, the search engine, to do a search of my inner being, of my true self, and help me spot things that need to be dealt with, the root problems in my life. All these symptoms, are, these external things are symptoms. I want to deal to get help and healing. I've got to deal with the root issues. Pride, lust, laziness, beginning with those deadly sins. And then all the things that spring off from those sins. Why don't you take some time this week and just say, Holy Spirit, help me do an inventory of my life. Show me the root problems. I'm always dealing with these symptoms. I want to know what's the root problem. And I want you to help me get it worked out. We hope you were blessed by our program today. If you would like a copy of today's program, go to www.fredlowry.com where you can find this program and other Christian resources by Dr. Fred Lowry. 